Hi, and welcome to the Beyond Waste podcast, a podcast designed to help you understand the systematic impacts of waste and what you can do about it. My name is Chelsea, and I'll be your host. Last week, you heard from staff members Jensen and Dianu, who discussed the history of organizing with guest appearances from Erica Thorne from Trainings for Change and Greg Jenko from Generation Conscious. This week, we have staff members Young and Kayla, who connect with frontline workers in the recycling industry from two of our mission-based recycling partners, Eureka Recycling and EcoCycle. If you have any questions about the concepts discussed today, please reach out to us at info at postlandfill.org and visit our website, postlandfill.org. Thank you. Greetings. Plan staff member Abby here to interrupt your podcast with my very basic understanding of some brutal astrological events happening right now. So we have a total of four planets in retrograde motion this week. Um, Now Pluto has been retrograde since late April, so a little less important, but Saturn, then Venus, then Jupiter, all station retrograde this week. I think we often hear retrograde and think, wow, my life is going to be a living hell. But that's not exactly true. This is a time where planet's energy turns inward. So if we can do the same with our own individual energies, we might have an easier time with all of this. I know that sounds a little woo-woo, but let's talk about it some more. What exactly do these planets moving backwards mean for us? Let's start with Saturn and Jupiter, which are two pretty social planets moving back into Capricorn. These planets station retrograde every year for a third of the year and often bring up some more abstract concepts rather than that high emotional energy that we often associate with retrogrades. Saturn retrograde is asking us to reflect on what we've learned about boundaries and our limits and our responsibilities in the world. Maybe this is a good time to ask yourself, what is my point of intervention in the linear consumption economy? Hmm. While Jupiter retrograde is asking us to take a break from expansiveness and reflect on our growth instead. So basically, it's a good time to double-check that those big decisions you made recently were the right moves. But the Venus retrograde, that's where things are going to feel a little bit spicier. Venus hits heavy on love, beauty, sensuality, and money. The retrograde might feel hard in relationships, whether those relationships are romantic or family or friends or coworkers. You might expect to have some trouble around communication and that, oh shit, are we going to break up? Uh, Feeling is pretty common during this time. This is a really, really, really bad time, though, to make big decisions around your love and beauty. So whether you're ready to cut ties with that partner you've been locked in the house with for months now, or maybe you're debating that quarantine mullet cut, maybe just hold off for like 40 days until Venus is back on track. Now, with all that being said, these retrogrades are pushing for pretty big changes. Many folks are calling it a time of rebirth. 
personally, I think it's a good excuse to rest often and be a little nicer to myself. But if you're just looking for something to blame your bad day on, just blame it on these retrogrades. So welcome to the podcast. For starters, thank you all for taking this time out of your day to have this conversation with us. We really appreciate it. Happy to be here today. Um, I'm young. I use they, them pronouns. I work with plants. My name is Kayla. I use she or they pronouns, and I also work for Plan. I'm Lynn Hoffman. I'm one of the co-presidents of Eureka Recycling. I use she, her pronouns. We'll talk about who Eureka is later, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Um. Well, my name is Fabio Dierings. I work for Eureka Recycling, and uh, I'm a driver. Yes. I've been working with Eureka Recycling since 2013. A long time. Yeah. With a company. My name is Marcela Ramirez. I'm the Mer PM manager. So on the Eureka Recycling, starting in 2003, got 17 years working here. <laughs> you got some loyalty, Lynn, at Eureka. <laughs> we do. People people tend to bounce right away or stick forever. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Cool. Yep. I am Kate Bailey. I work for EcoCycle. We are based in Boulder, Colorado, and we run a MRF a lot like Eureka. So we're one of the four mission-based recyclers. Uh, I am also on the plan board, which is one of the hats that I wear. Um, okay, we're going to start with what does Eureka do and um, what does EcoCycle do? If y'all want to do like short introductions about that. Eureka Recycling is a, a nonprofit zero waste organization based in the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and Minnesota. Uh, our mission is to demonstrate that waste is completely preventable. Um, what that looks like is that we have a fairly large recycling operation. We do um, we have a fleet of trucks that do collection in the Twin Cities metro area, and we run a, a MRF, a material recovery facility, where we sort single stream, mostly residential recycling. 100,000 tons of it a year, about 400 tons a day of material. And we've been around for almost 20 years um, doing this work. Um, and we're doing it to demonstrate that if you um, recycle with community benefit and human health and environmental health in mind, and not just profit, you make really different decisions about how um, you provide this important service. And we're trying to model that, and then we're trying to use that model to influence systems change um, and work on things like policy. And we work with Kate Bailey at EcoCycle and two other uh, zero waste nonprofits who also run recycling operations. There's only four of us left in the country. There used to be many, many hundreds, dozen, I don't know, lots. Um, you know, that was how recycling started was grassroots community organizations. But over many decades, there's been a lot of consolidation and now the major players are all um, very large corporate uh, waste companies. And so the four of us in our home communities are teaming up as AMBER, the Alliance of Mission-Based Recyclers, to um, kind of punch above our weight a little bit and get involved in um, more national conversations and leverage each other's experience and models to try to make the kind of change that we'd like to see. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> One of the things we're learning and talking about each other is it's just very funny how 
like when Lynn talks, I'm like, oh, I have to make sure I'm not saying all the same things because we're just very closely aligned. So, um, so yeah, EcoCycle is a nonprofit mission-based recycler. We're based in Boulder, Colorado. We have been in the recycling business since 1976. So we started one of the first 20 curbside recycling programs in the country and have been involved with the uh, with every aspect of recycling and building zero waste communities since then. And so I like to think of us as a jack of all trades in the recycling world in that we work on infrastructure and the, the business side of collecting, processing, and moving recyclables. We also work on the policy side in terms of the legislation and the goals and the planning that supports recycling. And we also work in education and advocacy. And so we're really working throughout the community with every sector, working with businesses, residents, government, schools, um, working with everybody to try to put together a model of what it is to build a zero waste community. So Lynn, you talked a little bit about how this is how it used to be. Everybody was nonprofit. Um, can you explain like the difference between a nonprofit recycler and a for-profit one and like why that happened? Sure. Yeah, I think um, probably people might tell this story in a variety of different ways, but in general, um, you know, the recycling was born out of communities who are wanting to address climate change and resource scarcity and create good local jobs. And, and, the, and to be honest, it just was like the demand grew these small neighborhood scale, small city scale community organization programs, like more and more people wanted more and more recycling. And it was um, pulling material out of the trash and um, the, there was money to be made. These are valuable commodities, they're global commodities. Um, you know, the, they, they ebb and flow with the complexities of the world economy, um, but they, so the larger waste haulers got into the game, started buying up smaller programs. And um, if you are recycling towards quarterly uh, profits and shareholder returns, and one thing that these larger companies are good at, what they're made for, what they're designed to do is, is find efficiency and make as much money as they can. And they're, they're good at that. And so, um, but if you're making decisions about how you collect, what you collect, how you sort, and where you sell it, what you make it into how you pay your workers all of those things um, if money is your only objective you make really really different decisions and so as as mission-based recyclers we're able to um, you know we don't have shareholders who are demanding or squeezing every penny out of what we're trying to do we don't subsidize our operations in any way. People often have that misconception about mission-based recyclers that we're somehow like getting grants or something to run our operations but we ours are our fee for service we're a weird nonprofit, and like 99 98 percent of our um, budget is fee for service <clears throat> our revenue so um, we use grants and donations to do things like studies and policy work and education work your typical nonprofit -y kind of work um, but we're trying to show that you can run an operation, you can pay living wages, you can have high safety standards, you can have high environmental standards, you can do all these things, you can keep the lights on and you can win these bids. I think maybe one other thing to say is that um, 
the other thing that makes us weird in the marketplace is that like we don't think recycling is the answer to most packaging or most waste problems. We think recycling is an important part of an approach to zero waste in the near term. Maybe there's a role for it in the long term, probably. Um, what that looks like is, is kind of TBD, but right and right now we're able to mitigate a lot of harm if we do it in the right way while we're working on source reduction. A lot of what we recycle is single use packaging that we just really don't need at all. Um, Recycling is better than burning it or burying it right now, but redesigning it is much better. And so we have a interesting voice in that conversation. Um, as recyclers, there's few of us that are waving that flag. Kate, I don't know, what would you want to add to that? So I talked yeah, a little. You're good, They're all good things. Um, I want to add just a couple of quick things. One is sometimes we don't use the word nonprofit because it does imply that we depend on a lot of grants. So we often call ourselves a social enterprise, which means that we use business-driven activities that generate a profit that we give back toward uh, investing in the community. So the revenue that we make from running our facilities goes back into education programs and advocacy work, and that works in our benefit because as we are able to invest more in education, we then have more recyclables coming to our facility and they have clean and we have cleaner recyclables coming to our facility and so i think one of the really important tangible differences between mission-based recyclers and and what you see in a lot of the rest of the country is the quality of our materials and so we are we have a reputation for having a really clean stream of recycling coming into our facilities because we invest heavily in education. And we have a really clean stream of materials going out of our facility that we are selling to recycling markets. And we have a, a strong reputation with those markets because they know they're gonna get clean, valuable materials for us. So we really are on the ground demonstrating what it's like to, to have a well-run recycling facility and i think especially now we, we read a lot in the news about really high contamination rates up to 40 percent of what's in the recycling cart is is garden hoses and things that can't be recycled that's not the on the ground in our communities awesome <clears throat> that's a really good distinction for us um so question for Fabio and Marcel, um, how did you end up at Eureka? Was it purposeful that you wanted to work at a mission-based recycler? For myself, I was uh, actually looking for a job. I was a driver before. I was working for a company that called Linders Greenhouses. Um, I didn't know anything about recycling until I get it. So, and then, uh, I found a job as a driver and uh, started learning about recycling. Yeah, and for my, so um, um, we go in some team agency, so we uh, signed some paper for getting uh, opportunity to job. So they sent me in here, so, and well, that's why we stay here. So and that's a, like a good to learn. So like I teach my kids, so, like how can recycle, how can they get a, like a better env environment. So. So that's really good experience working here. That's why I'm keeping here. So working at Eureka kind of like changed your perspective on recycling? 
Uh, yeah, for my opinion, yes, they change a lot. So uh, we have la now three kids and one grandson. So my little one, so they teach me all the time. They ask me all the time, which one is recycle? So they can be in trash or they can be in recycle. And something they show me like a plastic bag and why we not can recycle plastic bag with a, a PT bottle. So I'm explaining uh, why I am learning here. So I say, because if you put the plastic bag, they can roll in the springs and we can have a jam. So something like that. So we can recycle a plastic bag in different company, not in the Rica. So. Great. Thank you so much for sharing. This space is such a great opportunity to talk about the differences that are so clear between mission-based recycling and the recycling industry at large. Switching over to thinking more about the recycling industry overall, I've noticed some ways that commercial versus residential recycling has changed because of the pandemic. Additionally, in many areas, there's been an uptick in the amount of medical waste that's now being discarded. In what ways are you seeing the pandemic affecting the recycling industry? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, so many ways, there's a lot of angles to come at it, but I think just from the material composition, material flow, um, we, to your point, have seen a, a very steep drop off in commercial, tons, tons coming from offices, restaurants, of course, bars. Um, we were maybe only 15, 20% of our material was coming from commercial, um, previously and what we've lost in that uh, sector it we've gained in increases in residential we've seen maybe a 15 percent increase overall um, I think you know a lot more people are home and cooking from home and um, Marcella could probably talk more about the specifics but, you know everyone's ordering Amazon and drinking bottled water and all kinds of stuff so uh, we've definitely seen more of that and more takeout containers, more single-use plastics, things like that. Well, uh, in the MRF, we see more materials like uh, bottled waters and like cans, soda, probably because, you know, more people start drinking more in the houses. And uh, um, uh, we don't see much like uh, contamination for the medical stuff. So, uh, yeah, and we see more cardboard too. Yeah what does it mean for recycling to be deemed essential? So I think something really important happened when recycling was deemed an essential industry. And I think back to our grassroots beginning as recycling as just this little niche thing that happened 40 years ago. And I think all of a sudden now today we've been recognized as we are a very important service. When people thought about who has to be out there working they thought recycling is important. We People depend on that every day. And so I think that was really important just for our industry as a whole to just have grown to this point where we are an essential industry. I mean, I think we should take pride in that. I also think there's a really interesting shift happening right now where we for too long thought about recycling as an alternative to landfills and we just thought about recycling as a as a way to manage our waste and what we're seeing right now because of the pandemic is we're seeing all this disruption in the supply chain and we're actually having major industries we're having paper mills glass um, smelters metal refiner metal fabricators we're having industry step up and say 
we need more recycling because we depend on those recyclable materials to make our products. So for example, right, we're all still remarkably short on toilet paper for a variety of reasons, but nearly 60% of the input to a, to a tissue mill to make toilet paper is recycled paper. So those facilities are stepping up and saying, we need recycling more than ever. We can't just all of a sudden go cut down more trees and make toilet paper because our facility is, is not designed for that. And so we're, we're seeing recycling as actually part of the supply chain. And to me, this is actually a really exciting shift because this is how we build the circular economy. This is how we look at recycling is moving materials throughout the supply chain. We are the input. We're not focused on keeping it out of landfills. We're focusing on how do we get those materials back into use and how do we do that properly? And so instead of you know, crumbling under the pressure of the pandemic, I think instead we're sort of rising out of the ashes to say, wait a minute, we are an important part of this system. And I think that that's just really exciting development that's, that's happening right now. So the recycling deemed essential, of course, is great because you get to stay in business, but what does it feel like to be deemed essential? Um, Fabio and Marcel, you're, you're out there on the like, front line of this. So um, for me, uh, I feel so fortunate to have a job. And it's a privilege to me to be serving the community and of customers out there. And also giving them the insurance that we can, uh, they don't have to worry about their recycling, buying a lot in their garage and on the backyards. So we give the insurance for them that we're gonna be out there and helping them and collecting the recycling. You know, I feel essential because, you know, first of all, we have a job <laughs> and um, we feel like a, um, um, help like a reduce uh, like a um, trash or, you know, and like a, we can collect more uh, recycle more because if you, we close uh, like a winner recycle so we can get more like a Procedures they can go on the burning, so that's why I feel like I'm more uh, essential. I think there's a there's an opportunity too long term to think about the um, how we uh, value recycled content and the the inputs that Kate's talking about and decouple them from other kind of strange market forces. Metals have really low value right now. Most of the cans we sell go back into cans, aluminum cans, but that whole system is impacted by auto and construction manufacturing, which is really ground to a halt. And so the prices have been impacted on that side. Paper and cardboard have gone up insanely over the past couple of months because of that great demand. But I think an interesting case study is the plastic PET bottles. There's a huge demand for them in theory from brands who are making commitments. Um, bottle redemption centers have closed. We're hearing that folks need them, but the price of oil, as we all know, is negative, right? Very, very low. And so um, the cost to create recycled plastic resin can't compete with negative from virgin extraction. And so the subsidies and all of the things that prop up fossil fuel extraction make it almost impossible for recycled PET to compete. So there are policy mechanisms that people are looking at around recycled content mandates and things that would shift some of that subsidy towards a future that's more circular and towards recycling being that Kate was talking about, that 
some some materials are kind of doing that um, are pretty well established in that way already and then there's a, a long way to go for others um, plastics in particular it's really challenging so speaking about policy there is the recover act um i think that the act's name itself is really fantastic and it's cited as the Realizing the Economic Opportunities and Value of Expanding Recycling Act, otherwise known as the Recover Act. And what do you think of it? So uh, we have kind of a nuanced position on it. We think there is a need for a bill like the Recover Act. We think that recycling needs support. Nobody wins if recycling programs close. They're facing so many challenges beyond what we just talked about, supply chains, um, labor, all kinds of, uh, and then low markets from years past. There were so many communities that, whose programs were already on the edge. And so we think that there is a need for support for recycling as it is now to keep, keep it running. Because, you know, once you shut a, 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 a program down, it takes a lot to get back online equipment and trucks and you know it's um it's not an easy thing to turn that switch on and off and when you turn it off then you're going to have to create more capacity for trash so if we stopped recycling the 400 tons a day that we have then we'd have to expand the capacity at the burner and once you expand that it's pretty hard then that you once you kind of build the bees bigger then you've got to feed it and it can be harder even still to fight for that material back again so critical to to support recycling at this time what we're concerned about in that act is the way that it's written is so broad that a lot of um, potentially false solutions or greenwashing for um, under the banner of expanding recycling could be funded and that the places that recycling actually needs support won't get it. That the money will kind of be siphoned off to um, some kind of crazy process to recycle more junk plastic or something like that. Um, or expanding uh, styrofoam recycling. You know, right now there's a couple of models where they make like um, picture frames or something, but like how many crappy picture frames do we need? And would it not be better to just stop making styrofoam? Because there are alternatives. So um, let's not spend all of our money making styrofoam recyclable. Let's stop making styrofoam and spend our money on supporting recyclables that are already part of the supply chain, already value, easy to collect, easy to sort, less toxic to use and make and even recycle. We at Amber have been talking about this bill quite a bit, of course, and are writing a letter to, to congressional leaders about where we hope infrastructure and stimulus money will, will how it will be um, prioritized and what the accountability will be um, for supporting community, you know, recycling that will actually benefit the community and the environment. Um, how has your day changed since COVID? You have to make some determinations of like, this is what is safe right now. Um, like what did it look like before? What does it look like now? Sure. Um, so, uh, before, um, it was so much more relaxed out there. Um, I was, uh, every day I was looking forward, uh, to meet our customers and, um, out there and see those little kids that are running outside and uh, they wanna see the recycling truck uh, dumping the recycling can. We would have to limit ourselves uh, to have a conversation with the customers, uh, making everything so much more difficult to, if, um, 
educate them and showing them what is recyclable, what is not recyclable. And, um, and also at the, our base. And when you come to work right now, um, you need to wear a mask. They take our temperature at, uh, at lunchtime. Sometimes we have a couple games of ping pong. Right now we cannot even play that. And you know, everything is so much more difficult. Oh, and the more stuff so change a lot. So, uh, for example, using a mask, um, get a, like a six feet fits at distance with the other uh, co-worker, um, disinfect to the equipment. And like uh, when we go to like a uh, operation, we have to disinfect everything. Uh, we have uh, like a 21 sorters. We have to send first uh, like a 10 sorters. After that, we have to send another 11. So this can make it uh, like a, make it uh, like a two groups. It's the same uh, like a uh, equipment operator. So in the past, we sent uh, like a three. Now we have to send one and one. So because I don't want to get uh, like uh, more people get together. In the past, so um, when they guys come in the morning, sometimes they get a breakfast in the morning. So now they can. So when they guys come in, so we have to check the temperature and they have to go in the workplace. So we're not going to stay together anymore in the lunchroom with they guys. It's been um, a little nerve-wracking in terms of access to PPE. You know, exposure to vectors and hazards in recycling is nothing new. Our team is very good at um, doing their job safely, very used to safety protocol, wearing PPE. I mean, you wouldn't believe the things that come over, that come in the carts or come over the line. You know, it's like diapers and live chickens. And I mean, we've got so many stories we could tell you. Um, some are funny and some are like actually legitimately horrifying, so. You really had a live chicken? Oh yeah, many live animals, but Tina is our favorite story. She was rescued in the pre-start house. Marcella, do you remember her? And then she lives with one of our old interns now. She's like laying eggs. She's very happy. Uh, she lived in the office for like two days. We fed her worms out of the worm bin <laughs> so we could find a home for her. <laughs> that's, um, that's so funny. People are like, yes, I can recycle this. Um, but my point was that we get also a lot of dangerous things, you know, and lots of... Um, Hazardous waste, we get a lot of sharps, people that use needles at home and are told to put them in a plastic bottle to dispose of them and then they end up in the recycling. Culturally, it'll be hard and interesting to figure out how to maintain the community at Eureka. You know, it used to be um, everybody brought our kids in and our dogs in and we had potlucks and ping pong, like Fabio was saying. And now when we do meetings, like the driver meeting on Thursday I went to, like everybody's in their six foot spot out in the truck bay with masks on and I've got a bullhorn and we used to just like crowd around the table with a box of junky donuts you know but we can't do that anymore I think you know humanity at large is thinking about that but like Fabio and like Marcella we've had drivers with us for 15 20 we've got a driver coming up on 30 years with us so you know it does very much feel like a family and you want to keep everybody there and you want to make sure everybody feels safe. Um, so we are grateful for some of the, the government support that we've gotten that's going to help, you know, keep some of these people going and keep us going for, for a little bit. Um, uh, but also, yeah, not having access to great equipment, you know, can't get gloves for the guys in the trucks all the time and a lot of homemade masks and um, would love some more disinfectants and things like that. So it's been hard to know that 
our workers are out there every day with and really would want to have prepared them a little bit more, but just to have access to some of that stuff. That's part of what Amber is is talking to congressional leaders about too, is how to make sure, you know, it's, you don't want to be like competing with medical workers. There's so many essential workers that really have a need and there's just such a, um, a huge gap in terms of, of um, leadership around production and distribution. This leads really nicely into our like wrap up question, which is like, what can students that are listening to this or um, some of our colleagues do to help your organizations? Do you take donations? Do you um, want us to sign on to your act? What are some things that we can do to support you? Yeah, I think continuing to stay engaged in policy and letting your reps know what you care about. You know, we're seeing major rollbacks across the country. We're seeing the plastics industry really take advantage of this time and roll back um, product bans and bag bans and, you know, under the guise of safety. Um, so I think, you know, for us to stay um, diligent and creative about how we can um, continue to reduce waste in this era of, of hyper health concerns, you don't want to be tone deaf. You don't want to be, you know, um, putting people at risk, but I think we want to make sure that we're, um, we're watching and we're ready to, to act when it's appropriate. And I think, you know, maybe the one other facet of that is around essential workers. We've, we've heard a lot of talk about hazard pay and we've heard, you know, generally people's minds are shifting around what essential means. And um, I think paying more attention to um, how um, people doing this work are um, the kind of risk they're exposed to, to to keep our community healthy. And so my hope is that this attention um, and this uh, recognition of a need for change doesn't end when, with the pandemic, that we um, think about how we structure our contracts and maybe don't always push for the cheapest labor and push for the most efficient thing or the, the lowest bid but that we start to value as cities and municipalities and colleges and anybody who's, who's signing contracts for these kind of services are prioritizing safety and prioritizing living wages and prioritizing access to healthcare and all the things that essential workers deserve. Um, so that's, that's really the charge of Eureka and Amber is how do we leverage our models and show um, what we're working on as a solution, not just for this time, but for moving what the path forward looks like as we rebuild. And I think the really important message in there for students is that your campus is an incubator for those types of programs. So many social and environmental movements have started on college campuses and, and there is amazing amounts of purchasing dollars and contracts going on in your university. So you absolutely have an incredible uh, power to, to enact those sort of positive changes that we wanna see coming out of this as a student voice and not just as a student in your university, but also as a citizen in your town. So, so please speak up about all the issues that Lynn raised and, and you have definitely um, a lot of power at your fingertips. I think for me it's, a, it's really important to transmit a message to our community that if we stick together, we will get through this uh, difficult time. And I believe COVID-19 is preventable if you follow the guidelines. And I also believe that waste is also preventable. 
So um, recycle as much as possible and um, give our future generation a better place to live. The Beyond Waste podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Over the past four weeks, we have discussed topics on COVID and the zero waste movement. We at Plan believe that while nobody can do everything, everybody can do something. And this is just one small thing that we are doing during this time for our community. While this is our last podcast, we at Plan are hard at work bringing new content to the zero waste world. If you are interested in continuing this discussion or anything you've heard over the past four weeks, please reach out to us. Our email is info at postlandfill.org, and you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Postlandfill. If you like what you heard, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, review, and send this to your friends. Thanks for listening, and please stay safe.